For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Legislators extend emergency powers to Governor Stitt for an extra 30 days to help him deal with the COVID-19 pandemic in Oklahoma. While it's similar to the last emergency resolution passed at the start of April, lawmakers want some assurances. Ryan, what do they want to know? They really want to know how this money's being spent, what the governor's doing with it. And, you know, frankly, the, the governor doesn't have to do any of that stuff. I mean, a, a lot of what they're asking the governor do, to, to report you know, is really within the executive branch's discretion to do so. However, the legislature has some strings here with their, you know, both with the granting of the emergency powers and with budget negotiations coming up to make these demands. I mean, they, they, uh, you know, everything from the governor spending millions of dollars on you know, bogus uh, drugs that the president uh, has talked about in some of his bizarre press conferences uh, to, you know, potentially contracting with folks that are under FBI investigation. The legislature really wants to know how this money is being spent. And they put some conditions out there. And, you know, I think that it'll be incumbent upon the governor to, to play along with that. Neva. Absolutely. I agree. I think I think what the lawmakers and legislative leadership were spelling out uh, in this instance of extending for another 30 days uh, these emergency powers is to say to the governor exactly uh, exactly this. We we need to know specifically what is going on. I mean, there needs to be accountability while the governor has in the emergency declaration the ability to transfer up to 50 million dollars in state funds to respond to the crisis. Frankly, lawmakers have said that this probably um, will not be necessary in their view because he already has, the governor, nearly $800 million in federal uh, CARES Act money that uh, covers COVID-related expenses. So uh, the need to touch uh, any state funds uh, would seem uh, uh, not a high likelihood in their estimation. And and I think the lawmakers in giving the, the governor this week uh, saying you have 48 hours, two days, come back to us and spell out uh, what's been done is just to have that accountability factor that they believe uh, gives transparency, not only within within all of the folks in government, but also to the public at large. So I think I think that this was uh, an important kind of statement to be made among uh, lawmakers and this interaction with the governor. Hopefully it will increase the accountability, the transparency and the communication between all parties uh, in state government. And Ryan, while there was still bipartisan to get this thing passed uh, with no mm-hmm. problem at all, there still seemed to be some trepidation about whether or not they wanted to go through with this this extra 30 days. Yeah, there's some healthy skepticism. Representative Forrest Bennett made some outstanding points. I mean, he's saying, here's the governor coming to us and saying that he wants these extraordinary powers granted by uh, the legislature, you know, through the uh, through statute, that the legislature has this power to grant to the governor. Uh, and they did, you know, once before that he's coming back again. And even the governor in his press conference earlier this week said now is not the time to, to let off the gas, you know, that, that uh, COVID-19 is still you know, very much a threat in Oklahoma. Yet by the governor's actions and opening up the state the way that he, he has, I mean, he's really set a very different tone among the public. And Representative Bennett, Representative Walkie and others said, how's the governor saying that, you know, we need we it's ready to reopen, yet it's still an emergency. I, mean, I got to tell you that the, you know, just the anecdotal response among Oklahomans is that everything's fine now. And I think a lot of that comes from leadership 
uh, expressed by the governor. I went out to, I've been doing Lowe's, uh, you know, curbside pickup, you know, throughout the, throughout the hunker down. And I was out this weekend to pick something up because I'm doing all, all sorts of home repairs because that's what you do right now. Uh, <laughs> and I'm at the curbside pickup and it's a, it's a market increase from what I have been seeing. It looked like the 4th of July out there. I mean, it looked like 4th of July crowds and I get that everybody's just anxious to get out. But I think a lot of you know, what we're seeing right now is a direct result of a lack of leadership and example by the governor and Representative Bennett and Walkie and others were right to point that out. A legislative leaders announce a budget deal on the first day back in session. The deal includes cuts to state agencies, including education, but extra money for Governor Stitt's Sooner Care 2.0 to include expanding Medicaid with work requirements. Neva, what do you think about this plan? Well, I think, uh, first of all, this is a budget that they had hammered out for weeks and really months. I mean, this has been a long process where uh, the appropriations uh, and budget chairs in both the House and the Senate, their teams have been working closely together, uh, trying to deal with uh, uh, deal with the budget. And I think what they hammered out was a budget of $7.7 billion, uh, for the next fiscal year. And that's about 3% less than this fiscal year budget, which when you think in terms of all that's gone on uh, in from an economic standpoint, to be able to, um, uh, to kind of fight through this and work through the details. And they've taken, I, I think they have done some things that uh, uh, some would say are creative. And I think they are to the extent that there's, there's nothing um, inappropriate about it. It's just being able to make shifts where, are, uh, where it's necessary and where it's possible and to hold core services basically harmless. And I mean, that was a yeoman's uh, uh, task to, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to accomplish in this, in this uh, budget uh, situation that they're in. And I think when you look at it, I think long-term, I mean, in terms of uh, what this does going forward when they get a budget finally passed in the House and the Senate and move it to the uh, governor's desk, We'll see what the governor's response to this is, because clearly uh, he's not going to like some of the things that are in there. Some of the things he wanted are not in there. So this is where the give and take is going to come and probably the drama that we've talked about in terms of the potential for uh, vetoes and overrides and what will happen. All of that, I think we'll see in the next two weeks. Ryan, on Thursday morning, the governor said in the paper that he hadn't looked, he was still looking over the deal. So we haven't heard from him on whether or not he wants this budget or not. And I don't think that we will. I mean, the I'm, both there's there's the there are facts on the ground, which you know, facts and politics these days. Uh, <laughs> you know, who, let's let's not be bothered with those too much. Uh, but but you know, we I don't think that we've you know we haven't fully uh, felt the squeeze of the the revenue uh, f- uh, shortfall. I mean, that's just you know hasn't played itself out entirely yet. Um, you know, the the numbers that even. Uh, I think it was Senator Thompson, the, the appropriations chair, said that you know the numbers that they used to put together this budget uh, were based off of executive branch uh, calculations and projections. But he said even those, he he felt like were maybe too optimistic. But they were still, nevertheless, using the governor's numbers to try to put this together. Uh, I think that they are too optimistic. I think that you know whatever we pass here, there's a very good chance either in special session or. Um, you know, in some concurrent special session at the beginning of 2021, lawmakers are going to be passing supplementals um, uh, or, or, or modifications to deal with additional shortfalls. So, so there's that. Uh, and then there's the political side of this. And the, the governor and the legislature have been in an impasse for a, a very long time over a myriad of issues. Uh, the budget, uh, one of them, 
And I think the governor is going to keep his um, you know, potential for a veto here you know, really close. And we, we, we may not know until he vetoes it, whether or not he's going to veto. And we're, we're taping on a Thursday morning. I'm watching uh, on, on another screen as we're taping. The, the state Senate is considering appropriation bills as we as we tape. Um, and so, you know, these things are going to be landing on the governor's desk soon. And we'll, we'll get a sense of what's going to happen. I think that the budget picture is far from done right now. I think that what we've got is a very good start, but we're far from over. And this has been one of the longest weeks of legislative session <laughs> in, in my entire, you know, you know, 20 years or so out of the legislature in, in some capacity or another. I think, you know, we've got a long ways to go before this thing is over, especially with regard to the budget. And even the governor. Well, and, also- and let's remember with regard to the budget that you have you have this federal relief money. You have uh, federal monies that uh, have still to be fully factored into the equation. All of those things are positive in terms of uh, uh, softening the blow in areas like education and other areas uh, as the uh, uh, budget appropriate. Uh, budget appropriators have talked about. So um, the issue of COLAs, I mean, while it's not in the current budget package, uh, uh, the um, uh, legislative leadership has said that it's something uh, still being considered. So it's, as we always know, the budget is largely a moving target, but at the end of the, at the end of all of this, they have a looming May 29th, 5 p.m. deadline to get the work done and get the budget, uh, get the budget finalized. And David, the governor also said in that article in the Oklahoman that the first time he saw the budget was when it was announced by legislative leaders on Monday after Monday morning, Monday afternoon. Were you surprised the fact that they did this completely without the governor say so? I don't think I've seen that in my 10, 15 years of covering the Capitol. Well, let's remember, I think that uh, we that this has been an ongoing process. It hasn't been just a few weeks, as uh, as we all know, in, in crafting this budget. But uh, there's no question. I mean, uh, who's, whose version uh, someone wants to publicly talk about? But th- there is a divide between uh, the governor and legislative leaders, uh, and they have not been working well together, their teams, uh, at, this, at this point, at least perhaps not as well as some would argue in the past. But that's... That's all relative. And so I think I think this is one of those, uh, again, places where we find uh, we find legislative leadership basically saying to the governor and everyone, look, we we, we're putting a budget together. But not only are we putting the budget together, but we want to be able to uh, show clearly where these dollars are being spent, specifically with the federal dollars as they're coming in. A lot of discussion about for transparency, having a state website that would uh, require publication of where uh, where these dollars are being spent. So th- there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, the the, uh, the governor's Sooner 2.0 being part of the budget uh, is certainly uh, another thing that I think is going to be kind of, uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of give and take still on some of these core pieces that are that are still in play. And as Ryan says, I mean, how does this factor in at the end of the day if we get a a veto from the governor and will the votes be there to override? Right. And and that's where the politics of the Democrats and the Republicans and the numbers come in of, you know, what does it take to get uh, to get that override accomplished? And I think that's where some of the real drama, if we want to call it that, uh, will take place uh, here right at the end. 
A day after the state Supreme Court removed barriers to vote by mail, legislative leaders introduced Senate Bill 1779 requiring voters to provide a photocopy of identification with an absentee ballot and reinstates the notarization requirement. Ryan, uh, the, the bill got then switched over to two different other bills at the lab very last minute, uh, but they did pass the House on Wednesday. What are you thinking about this? I think it's it's outrageous. I mean, here is a, you know what the Supreme Court did. You know, some folks are saying that the Supreme Court legislated from the bench, uh, or that they created new law, or that they read into some sort of ambiguity in the law. They didn't do anything of the sort. What the Supreme Court did was read the law, and in fact, the law uh, that they that they read that said that absentee ballot uh, voters uh, had an option. They could either get their ballot notarized, which you know a lot of us know is kind of a pain in the neck. Uh, or they can sign an oath on their absentee ballot under penalty of law uh, with an enormous criminal pe- felony criminal penalty attached to it uh, that this is their true vote and who they and they are who they say they are, you know, similar to the way we register to vote. Um, the court recognized that. And, and instead of the state saying, oh, my gosh, you know, we've been not following the law for 18 years. I'm so sorry. We're going to fix that moving forward. Uh, what the secretary of the election board and his uh, compatriots in the Oklahoma House of Representatives did was to immediately say, we're OK with that right that you've had for 18 years, as long as you don't exercise it. But now that you're exercising, it, we're going to take it away from you, Oklahomans. It's it's pretty incredible. I don't know of a of another instance where you've had a Supreme Court opinion uh, attacked by the legislature so swiftly and so uh, and, and so completely as what we saw in the legislature. This photo ID requirement that they're saying is you can you know get a photocopy of your driver's license or some other state ID and send it in with your notary or send it in with your ballot. That assumes a lot of things that people have a photocopy machine. It doesn't make it any easier. And then under this bill, that requirement would really only exist for the June primary. It wouldn't extend beyond that. Beyond that, we'd go back to having to notarize absentee ballots. You know, this is you know, meant to talk about voter fraud. That's what they keep talking about. No instances of voter fraud with this deal with the, the voter fraud allegations are a straw man. They don't really exist. Uh, this is about voter suppression. This is about making it harder for people in Oklahoma to vote. Plain and simple. Neva. Well, I don't buy the voter suppression argument when when you have multiple options in terms of how to go to the poll, either go to the polls, uh, stand in line on Election Day and vote, go to, you know, go to the polls early for early voting or do the absentee voting. And basically, I mean, to be clear, what the court did did this week is it ruled and said that the absentee ballot statute uh, statute had relied on the wrong section of law to require the notarization. I mean, basically, the court modified uh, uh, a poorly written statute uh, and and the technicality uh, and addressed it. So I think the important point of Senate uh, of SB 210, which passed 7426 in the House, uh, is that it allows for someone to again cast an absentee ballot in this upcoming June 30th election without having to go to the polls, without having to use a notary, they can, uh, as you say, Ryan, they can uh, put the uh, uh, the copy of their um, uh, voter card or ID uh, uh, in the uh, in with their in with their ballot and send it in. I mean, showing an ID to vote is standard practice. So, I mean, to say that this is, uh, you know, uh, some unusual hardship when they have made allowances. In fact, they went so far as in the bill to give specifics for voting procedures and in pandemics such as we're in, uh, in a public health emergency to allow for some additional things to uh, 
to kick in in terms of uh, dealing with nursing home facilities, veteran center residents, uh, people that are uh, incapacitated in this instance with COVID-19. So I think uh, I think those things were addressed sufficiently. I think that we have uh, everything in place now to move forward with a June 30th election. And I think uh, voters have uh, virtually, they have every opportunity to continue to exercise their right at the ballot box that they've had in the past. Ryan, making a photocopy of an ID, of course, costs money. Uh, either you do it on your own on your computer, which of course costs paper and ink, or you have to go to the library and pay, pay a dime at least to pay for a photocopy. Uh, if you're paying to vote, is that is that going to be held up in a in a court of law? Yeah, I think that you know the there are a number of groups that are looking at potential legal challenges here. Yeah, you know, that you know that cost is is among the considerations that that we're looking at. Um, you know, I, I can just tell you that you know looking at what the what happened as soon as the court ruled on on Monday, um, and and again the court didn't create new law. They just said the state hasn't been following the law for 18 years. That Oklahoma voters have had this right for 18 years that that just hasn't been enforced, and now we're wanting to enforce it. And really what that 18-year-old law did was bring us in line with, you know, 47 to 49 other states, depending on how you count. You know, we're one of the few states, if not the only state, that had a notary-only requirement for absentee balloting. Um, There are a number of other ways to verify absentee ballots, you know, everything from last four of a social driver's license number, all all sorts of ways to, to, to verify that don't require these burdensome additional steps like, you know, photocopying an ID. Um, and lawmakers, you know, keep talking about fraud, but they can't really point to a single example of fraud that this would prevent. And really, um, yeah, other states don't have that issue either. I mean, this is just really about, you know, making it easier for Oklahomans to exercise their vote, but in all elections, but especially during a pandemic like the one we're realizing right now. The attorney general says Governor Stitt cannot enter into compacts with tribes authorizing gaming activity prohibited by state law. Mike Hunter says the governor overstepped his authority in his agreement with two tribal governments. Neva, what does the AG believe the governor did wrong here? Well, I mean, he believes that uh, that these compacts are prohibited by law. He is, uh, uh, in his nine-page opinion, uh, was very specific about this and outlining it. And basically then... Um, uh, communicated with the uh, uh, the Secretary of the Interior uh, that and urged the federal official to reject the compact agreements as well. So, I mean, this is a full court press. I mean, it is a it is definitely a, a standoff between the governor and the attorney general on uh, what they believe is uh, uh, what they believe about uh, these compacts. But at the, at the end of this process, it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly we get this resolved, because not only is this is this in play, but we have, again, still the mediation with the uh, uh, with the large 10, 10 tribes plus that are that are still um, uh, still in dispute and saying that basically the compacts automatically renewed on January one of this year. And that is yet to be resolved. Ryan. Yeah, I don't, I don't say this often, but the Oklahoma attorney general has the law squarely on his side. Uh, he is he is he is right on this one. And, I, you know, I, I encourage folks that are interested, go read that uh, eight, nine page AG opinion. Uh, and I think it's it's a really good uh, primer on compact law. You know what the state can do, what has to happen for for that to be affected by the legislative branch, what has to happen from the executive branch, the interplay between state and uh, and sovereign tribal nations and the federal government. 
uh, it's a really it's a really good eight to nine page uh, primer on, on understanding those issues. And I, I really don't understand the governor's position on this. Um, I really think that what's happened here is that the governor probably didn't intend to create some you know, major legal confrontation between himself and the attorney general uh, and possibly another federal government with the secretary of the interior. And uh, not to mention uh, you know, a number uh, or the vast majority of the state's uh, sovereign nations that, that exist in Oklahoma. Um, I, I think that what he did was he wanted to PR stunt uh, to be able to say that you know, he's got at least some tribes on his side. He wanted to be able to stand at a podium and say, look, not all tribes hate me uh, and are against me. Uh, I've got some friends that in tribal government. And what it did is it created this, this major legal confrontation now where the governor is just wrong. Um, and if, if, uh, if past practice is any predictor of future action here, the governor won't back down from this legal position. Uh, I think that the governor, he has, he has a history, uh, to just double down whenever he's wrong, rather than just throwing his hands up and saying, you know, Attorney General, uh, General Hunter, I, I may be wrong here. You've got a point. I don't think that's going to happen. We are seeing a major impasse uh, between, we've seen it developing now for months, but right, this is the, the starkest example of the political impasse between the Attorney General and the Governor. And it's hard to uh, remember a time when you've had a the same party occupy both offices, the attorney general and, and the, the, the uh, governor's mansion, and they've been at such odds with one another. And that's, that's strange because the attorney general's opinion here is binding uh, until, a, until a court says otherwise. The governor you know, under law is supposed to abide by that. So mm -hmm. we'll see if he does. And, you know, the interesting thing, Ryan, I mean, it, it is so clear, uh, the language in this opinion. I mean, uh, Attorney General Hunter says the governor lacks the authority to unilaterally bind the state to compacts with these with the Indian tribes and uh, and authorize uh, activity that is prohibited by state law. That's pretty clear. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, if this is to go uh, uh, kind of on up on up the line, I mean, it is going to be very interesting to see um, uh, how how the governor uh, continues to try to position himself politically, as well as just from the legal uh, from the legal standpoint of uh, what's in question here with these compacts that he is uh, that he's entered into on behalf of the state of Oklahoma. So uh, uh, I think not only the implications for Oklahoma, but certainly I think this is something that all across the nation. Uh, folks are watching because of the huge implications of uh, what it speaks to long term with the uh, Indian nations. A federal judge is keeping Oklahoma executions on hold. A.G. Mike Hunter wanted appellate courts to consider resuming executions in August, but the judge wants more detail from the state. Ryan, why would this create a delay in carrying out the death penalty? Well, because we're going to have the, the attorney general uh, has said that he wants to start this in the fall. You know, it's going to take the court longer than that to, to be able to get you know, some sort of resolution. What the court wants are details. You know, the, the state has you know, taken this, uh, you know, for, for the longest time now, um, uh, the state has taken a position of let us uh, let us do this and just trust us. Just trust us. And it, it's so strange because politically in Oklahoma, Oklahomans across the board, Republicans, Democrats, independents, we, we have got a, a really strong tradition in Oklahoma of not trusting government. Um, sometimes that's healthy. Sometimes it's not. Uh, but we've got a strong tradition of not trusting government. But when it comes to things like capital punishment, um, you know, we, we give a lot of deference to the government. Well, I think that they've they've abused that deference. They've they've abused it by demonstrating time and again 
that they are incompetent to carry out this ultimate power of any state on the face of the planet, which is the ability to take the life of its people. Um, you know, through through you know, you can say that it's legal or whatever, uh, but that's it. They're they're you're strapping somebody down, putting a needle in their arm, or putting a mask over their face and suffocating them, or injecting them with poison and killing them. That's a this is the most awesome power that a state has, and they just want us to trust them. They've shrouded this in secrecy for so long, and a federal court is saying if you're going to open this thing back up, I want more details to know whether or not what you're doing is in compliance with, among other things, the Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution. So. Getting those details, I think, will take some time. And um, you know, rather than rush through with some executions without knowing that information, I think it's it's wise to uh, both on the state's part and on the court's part to put a pause button on that. Neva, I, I think the governor, I think the attorney general, I think the uh, uh, the interim director, of the Department of Corrections, I think everyone at the news conference earlier this week was very clear in saying that uh, everyone understands that there's no more serious or profound responsibility that that state officials have than to carry out the death sentence. That being said, uh, it is it is uh, been over five years since the last execution. Many, many families uh, waiting for justice uh, in in uh, instances of some of the most horrific of crimes that have been committed. And let's keep perspective here. I mean, we have 25,000 inmates incarcerated in Oklahoma today. 47 have been found guilty uh, and uh, given the death penalty, and 26 of those now have exhausted all appeals, I believe. So you're, you're looking at this group, uh, and now we're looking at putting everything in place, uh, answering all of these questions, making sure everything is, is, uh, is done uh, to uh, uh, discharge this responsibility, to do it, as you say, Ryan, clearly uh, in the most uh, humane and effective manner possible as it adheres to the Eighth Amendment, uh, the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment that uh, the attorney general uh, made clear in his, in his comments this week. But he also reiterated the fact that that the uh, that his office is going to use uh, any route necessary and constitutionally valid uh, to resume these executions as, as uh, expeditiously as possible. So uh, his position being that the victims' families and loved ones have waited long enough through these lengthy appeals uh, and that uh, the state has the responsibility and the duty to get the protocol right. But uh, at the at the end of this process, that uh, it is time to move forward uh, and to begin to uh, uh, prepare the way uh, for these uh, uh, for these executions to take place. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.